I hope you have your Bibles, and if you do, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 5. We're going to read John chapter 5, verses 31 through 47. The Word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness that we as people of God might be equipped for every good thing. And that is our purpose this morning. And I ask you to stand in honor of reading the Word of God, John chapter 5, verses 31 through 47, the Word of God. And Jesus alone is speaking here as he says to us, If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth, but the testimony which I receive is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice or at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe him whom sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And again, God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. This morning I want to start with a question that has plagued theologians for ages And it's something I hope that we can settle this morning. And the question is this. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? I mean, this has for centuries plagued theologians. They've grappled with this. It is a a question of of incredible importance. and, And we want to find the answer to it. And as theologians, we ask questions like, um, what is the, the ground of their dancing? Uh, what is the manner of their dancing? What is the, uh, the, the telos? What is the perceived end of their dancing? And we need to know these things because if we, if we let them go unattended, there, who knows what eternal consequences might be in store. But before we even answer that question, we have to know what the question is, right? Because is it how many angels can dance on the head of a pin 
Or is the question, how many angels can dance on the head of a needle? <laughs> if we don't get the question right, we don't get the answer right. And we, we, we must resolve this if we really want to be at peace in eternity. Yeah, right. That phrase, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, is something that people have used to criticize theologians throughout the centuries for minutia, theological minutia, and searching the scriptures and, and, and digging deep all for the sake of personal knowledge and theological truth without any heart, without any perceived end of loving God and serving him. And that is exactly what the Pharisees did in the time of Jesus. The religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees, the scribes, they spent all of their time wrangling over things of inconsequence, hoping that uh, people would think that they're pretty cool and pretty smart because of their knowledge of the law. In this passage, Jesus is going to call them out for this. As you have seen, as we have read, remember this passage is about uh, from chapter 5, verse 19 to the end. Jesus is declaring his divine son, sonship. He's the only one who's speaking in this, in this, uh, this, this uh, testimony of himself. And he, he's saying to, to these religious leaders, uh, I and the Father are one. Remember, they wanted to kill him because he was making himself equal with God. And he's saying, I am equal with God. Uh, he is... My father, I am his son, I am the son of God. He is saying, I am God myself. These, these are things that uh, would be hard for them to swallow, to be sure. But he's declaring that. He is, uh, he's laying down the fact that he is the divine son of God. And now he is going to give evidence of that. He's going to give the testimony of that. In fact, we're going to see the word uh, testimony used 12 times in the passage that we look at this morning. And the word testimony means to confirm something that is based on personal knowledge. To confirm something that is based on personal knowledge. If you are a witness in a court of law, it means you have personal knowledge of something, and you come and you confirm that this thing is true. So help you God. You swear to tell the truth. And so Jesus is going to prepare to give to them the evidence He's been saying all along, I'm equal with the Father. He's going to give the reasons why. He's going to give the the, the witness, the testimonies. The word witness that we have seen, if you even look in your Bibles, you have little headings that talk about witness, 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 or testimony, 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 testimony. They're the same word. But we get the word martyr from it. In fact, martyr means one who witnesses at the cost of one's life. That's what a martyr is. It comes from the word martyrion, witness, the word that is used here. And that's not really what he is talking about per se in this passage, but it shows us the gravity of what a witness can be because the logical extension of being a witness for Christ, being a faithful witness for Christ, is the possible loss of one's reputation, of one's livelihood, and even one's life. If we are a faithful witness, in fact, what will happen to Jesus as a faithful witness of the Father? He will lose his life. 
So Jesus is going to list these different ways in which the Father has given witness to the fact that he is the divine Son of God. And we can learn from the mistakes of the Jews. That's really what this is about, uh, learning from mistakes. Uh, you, you may have had that happen in your life where you had a job once and you had a really bad boss. And you said to yourself, if I am ever in charge, I will never pe- treat people like that. And uh, we learn from negative examples, and the, the Jews are a negative example. And so we, we need to learn from their mistakes. And the first thing we see is we see that there is this generous testimony that is rejected. A generous testimony that is rejected. He gives them an abundant testimony. He gives them a gracious testimony. It's, it, it, is, it is sufficient and, and it is many faceted. It all comes from the Father, but He gives them more than enough evidence, more than enough evidence for them to understand where He is coming from and who He really is. Verses 31 and 32 say this I alone testify about myself. My testimony is not true. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Five times in two verses he uses the word testimony or testify. What is the subject of the passage? Testimony, witness. I alone testify about myself. My testimony is not, if my, my testimony is not true, there is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he testifies about me is true. I don't know why it's translated given there, but he testifies. So Jesus is recognizing a principle from Jewish scripture. And that principle from Jewish scripture found even in law today that on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter will be confirmed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. One witness is not enough because who knows? They might be prejudiced. They may be lying. But if you have two or three witnesses, you can establish the truth. And so Jesus is recognizing, he's saying to them, look, I understand what I'm saying to you is, is, is pretty hard to swallow. Um, I don't expect you to just take my word for it because I understand the law. Because after all, he said, I'm equal with God. After all, he said, I am the son of God. After all, he said, um, the son of God will call the dead and they will hear and they will live. And after all, he said, one day I'm going to judge them. One day I'm going to raise everybody from the dead. Isn't that a lot for them to understand and to believe at this point? Absolutely it is. And so he is going to give them adequate testimony, abundant testimony that is sufficient because these are pretty serious claims that he's laying before them. And he better be able to back it up. And he really wants to give them evidence, and it's a gracious thing that he does. And so he gives to them this this generous, this gracious testimony, this witness. So what is the evidence? The first is this, the witness of John the Baptist. The witness of John the Baptist. He brings up John. We don't know John may be dead at this point. If not dead, he's in jail. But he says to them, You've sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. There's the word. He's a witness to the truth. Jesus is the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man. So Jesus is, is going to say, he's going to say that uh, there's a greater testimony. He's not going to, to just totally trash John's testimony. He's just saying there's a testimony from man, but there are varying degrees of, uh, of importance of testimony. 
I, my testimony, which I receive, is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, he is interested in their salvation, and some of them will come to Christ. We forget that sometimes. Some of these leaders will put their faith in Christ, and, and he wants them to be saved. And he says of John, he was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. They themselves, they asked of John, they sent to him, and they said, Are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? And what was his answer? No. I'm one crying out in the wilderness, but the one who's, uh, who, who's coming before me, um, uh, the one on whom you see the Spirit poured out, he is the one. In fact, it says in chapter 1, There came a man sent from God whose name was John the Baptist. He came as a witness to witness about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. John's role was clear, to shine the light on the Messiah upon Jesus. He was a testimony of the truth of Jesus. At that time, there was this messianic fervor. John was baptizing. People were streaming to him in the desert, and people were coming. They thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. They even thought, well, maybe he is indeed the Messiah. And so they were caught up in the fervor. They rejoiced that something is happening in Israel, and they thought that he was a great guy. They got caught up in all of this for a while until John got political started uh, talking about Herod's personal sexual life until uh, John started supporting this upstart uh, rabbi from Nazareth because they didn't like that. John fell from favor in their eyes, but, but uh, his whole purpose was to witness to Jesus. And he's saying to them, look, you, when, when John came... You thought he was great. You, you rejoiced in the light. It's like, like this light that was burning, like this lamp shining in darkness, and then it faded away. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He says this in the book of John. He also said in, in Matthew, you know, he, said, he says that you are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's why we sang this little light of mine, right? Right, kids? Let's sing it again. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. And so our lesson. John's mission is our mission. To illumine Jesus as the way. He said to the, to, to the Pharisees, I came that you might be, this is so you might be saved. You could have been saved with John's testimony because he was pointing to me. And maybe he's saying to them, you need to go back and rethink that. John's testimony was to point to Jesus, and that is our testimony, not to point to ourselves. And that's a big part of this passage. 
We are always to be glorifying the Son and glorifying the Father and pointing to Him and not gathering glory for ourselves. Our mission is the mission of John the Baptist and the mission of Jesus to let the world know the light of life. We have the answer, and it is Jesus. So, This generous testimony that was rejected was first the witness of John the Baptist. The second thing that they they rejected was the witness of the works of Jesus. The witness of the works of Jesus in verses uh, uh, 36. Jesus goes on to say this, But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. Not putting John down. It's just it's a higher degree. It's it's more. There's more gravitas. The testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John because the works which the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, he says, they testify about me that the Father has sent me. The works that he is doing, he is referring to, are the signs. Remember the book of John is all about the signs, the seven signs or more. The miracles that Jesus is performing He is performing these miracles, and the purpose of the miracles, remember, was so that they would look to Jesus. Remember the second second testimony. It comes from the Father through the works of the Son, because because the Son is only doing what the Father has called him to do, and they are interrelated. These are the things that are given by the Father, and the purpose of them is that they would see that the Father has sent him. Lesson for us, be wary of seeking the miracle, but missing the Messiah. We've already seen this in this book. There were many people that were, they were following after Jesus as a miracle worker, but they were missing him as a Messiah. And it is happening today in our world, in, in Christendom, where people get so caught up in the miraculous and the, the showy and uh, all of the things that are, that are bright and shiny, and they miss the real light, the real testimony of Jesus himself. Remember what this book is about. What is the, what the purpose of a miracle? John 20, he, it says this, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these that are recorded have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the divine Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The purpose of the miracles recorded in Scripture is so that people will believe in Jesus, that they will believe that he's sent from the Father, that they will believe that he is the one who gives life, that they will believe that he is the sin-bearer on our behalf, that he is indeed the Messiah. And so once again, we're cautioned that these signs that are, that are performed by Jesus and recorded in the scriptures, their purpose is to point to him and not a miracle. And they show his authority over sickness, his authority over uncleanness, his authority over death. They show his authority over the demonic realm. And next week we'll see they show his authority over nature itself. But his works recorded in the scriptures They're sufficient. Even at this point, he says, you have rejected a sufficient, a generous 
testimony of me. He says that to them. And the problem for those who seek miracles, you know what the problem is? They always want more. It's never enough. It's not sufficient. He is sufficient. He is. The third sign of the, the, this generous testimony that is rejected in verses 37 and 38 is that the witness of the word and the Father, they rejected that. The witness of the word, the very words of God himself. Verses 37 and 38, And the Father who sent me, that he just established, he has testified, born witness of me. You've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe in him whom he sent. The father sent him and he's testified. He says, you've ne- neither heard his voice and you have not seen his form. It's, it's kind of hard to understand. Well, what is he talking about? Some think that he might be talking about um, Mount Sinai where they heard the voice of God from heaven um, and they saw some form of, of God, and Moses did at least, you know, the, the, the pavement, and he saw uh, God above this and angels and all of these things. But I wonder what he has just said in context here. Remember what he said in verse, uh, uh, verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. The voice of the Son is the voice of the Father. The voice of the Father is the voice of the Son. That's the whole point he's making in this, isn't it? His voice is his Father's voice. His Father's voice is his voice. He only speaks and does what is on behalf of the Father. And you have not seen his form. Remember what the, 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 it says in the beginning of this book. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory... Glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Is it possible that he's referring to his own incarnation? I'm speaking for God the Father. You want to know what God's like? Here it is, right in front of you. I'm explaining this to you, what the glory of God is all about In any case, they haven't been listening, they haven't been looking, and they haven't been believing. Notice he says, you do not have the word of God abiding in you. This is the word logos. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God, and the logos became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. And he came to those who were his own, and they rejected him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. The Logos who came into the world, Jesus the Christ, he is the Logos. And the Logos before that time, of course, was the word of God. And they don't have it abiding in them. This is that important word we see in the book of John 
uh, throughout the, the meno, which means to abide and to remain. And so they're just casual observers of God's word. They're just passers-by. They haven't stopped to drink deeply and to, and, and to have it inculcated into their lives. You know what the, the scriptures say? This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you will be careful to do all that is written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day. Meditation is the idea of a, like a, ch- a cow chewing its cud. It's something on the inside. You're mulling it over and thinking about it and turning it over. It becomes part of you. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. They should have been responding to the light. Psalm 119.11, your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. It has power in our lives to keep us righteous and to keep us from temptation and from falling to sin. And all those things were true for them. Of Ezra, it says this in the book of Ezra, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. He didn't study to teach. He studied to practice. The study of the word of God and the word of God being in our lives, abiding in us is is something that we, we study for the purpose of living it, practice what we preach. And this is what they were guilty of. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin instead of, This is what I need to do. This is what the scriptures say. This is how I need to live. This is the power to live that way. And you know what the real problem was? The end of verse 38. Because you do not believe in him whom he sent. You don't believe me. You don't believe in him. It's all a matter of faith. And you don't believe. He came into his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But we, who did receive him, we become children of God. So, the lesson. Learn from a mistake, the mistakes of the Jews. Accept the light, accept the witness that you have been given. If the, the, the witness, the testimony, the light that you've been given. If you're not a Christian and you're here or you're listening, there are people around you like John the Baptist who have, who have shown brightly before you. They, they've shown you. They've, they've talked to you about Jesus. Maybe you've been reading the Word of God and you know the miracles of Christ Jesus. And maybe you've been studying and you're, you're trying to figure this out. Pay attention. You've been given a lot of light and a lot of witness. It is sufficient Why do you need more? Today might be the day of your salvation, the day that you believe because the light that he's given to you is sufficient. And Christians, we live in an era where, you know, on my computer I have, um, I've got a good library in my office. Um, Oftentimes I don't touch books. 
anymore too much because on my computer I have an incredible theological library and you, those things are at your fingertips. You can, you can listen to sermons. You can search out things and read articles about the Bible ad nauseum, right? Let me tell you this. You are responsible for the light. I'm not saying don't go study. I'm just saying that we are all responsible for the light that we have been given and the more that we eat and drink and study, we are responsible to not just study it but to practice it, that it become part of our hearts, that it abides in our lives and we live it out. So, 31 through 38, the generous testimony rejected. 39 through 47, the written testimony misused. They misused what was before them. We have the light, like I said, but to them, they squandered it. They misapplied it. They misunderstood it. They misused it in many ways. They misinterpreted it. It was uh, an opportunity squandered for a number of reasons. They did not rightly handle the word of God. And the first way that it was misused was as a means of salvation. It says in verse 39 and 40, you search the scriptures. This is not logos. This is the word graphe, the, the, the actual writings. You search the writings because you think in them you have eternal life. Now, some want, this is an imperative and some um, translate this. I'm not sure if um, there are some translations that say this, that say um, search the scriptures as an imperative. Um, it is an imperative, but it doesn't mean a command in this case. All imperatives don't mean commands. He's just saying this is what you do as an imperative in your life. You are searching the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life. For them, it was all about the study. For them, it was what they were misusing. It was all about gaining knowledge. They thought if they studied hard, that was what salvation was. They thought if they knew more, that's what salvation was. If I memorize the Torah, that's salvation. It's in the study. And he says, you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's obvious the way he's worded that. He's saying to them, you got it wrong. Of course you don't have eternal life just in studying the graphe, the letter of the law, the minutia of theology. And at this time, of course, we know that uh, in the Old Testament, uh, um, when, they, when, they, when the scribes were copying the law, they had all of these rituals that they went through. They had to, they had to count the, the letters on the page and divide. And, and when they wrote one letter, they, they had to stop and they go back to look at another. And they had all of these minutia details, which were good for us. It gave us uh, the, the scriptures and it shows a reference, reverence for the scriptures but it also demonstrates that attention to minutia because for the Pharisees and the scribes, and it's possible for us as well, to move through the scriptures with a cold precision that is lifeless. That's what they did. 
It is these that testify about me, Jesus said. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. It wasn't a matter of knowledge, was it? It was a matter of their will. When we come to Christ, we have to come to faith in him. And, and yes, we know that no one can come to, to the Lord unless he draws them. But at the same time, we are culpable for our decision. We are made in the image of God. We have a, we have a mind and we have uh, affections and we have a will and we are held culpable for our decision to accept or reject the testimony of Christ. And they were unwilling. You know why people are unwilling? And I'll say it to you if you're not a Christian yet. It is because of your sin. It is because you don't want to give up your sin. Because you know, as I knew before I became a Christian, trusting in Christ and in my Savior meant I had to stop going this way and I was going to have to go this way. That's what repentance is. And that is part of the gospel. Yes, we're saved by grace through faith. But when we understand that it's all about sin, we can't just say, well, I want my sin forgiven, and yet I'm going to continue to do that. What is that all about? Of course not. And for them, it was all about their own sin and their own pride. They were unwilling to believe. So, a lesson for us. Study solely for the sake of study is lifeless and fruitless. We need to be careful. I, I love theology. I love Greek and Hebrew grammar. I didn't learn grammar, English grammar, until I studied uh, uh, Greek and Hebrew. And I love that study. But it's easy for me and it's easy for you to diagram sentences and, and to, to uh, do all sorts of, of, of studies that uh, you see connections and you're underlining and this is an important word and uh, this is the connection here. And we study, 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 study. To what end? To what end? An inclination to theological minutiae can lead to a loveless knowledge of the scriptures. Yes, we should love the law because of how it changes us. Yes, we should love study of scripture because we love the Lord of the scriptures. Amen? These are his words to us. They are God-breathed. There is life in them, but they always point to him because that's what Jesus said uh, to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. These testify about me. Just like John pointing the way to Jesus, the scriptures are always pointing the way to him. So they misused it and misunderstood this graphe, the writings, as a means in and of themselves to salvation. Second of all, this test, written testimony misused as a justification for loveless legalism. As a justification for loveless legalism. Say that a couple times quickly, everybody. Loveless legalism. <laughs> Verse 41, I do not receive glory from men, 
but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Whew. Zing, right? He uses the word glory here, but in, in this context, the way he is using it is, is like praise. When he says, I do not receive glory from men, Jesus is saying, um, my glory is inherent in myself. You, we don't add anything to Jesus. He possesses all glory. He possessed all glory before the foundation of the world. His glory was veiled while he was incarnate on this earth, and that's why he would pray later to the Father, uh, glorify me with the same glory we had before the world was. He wants to, that glory to, to be returned in the fellowship of the Father, in the triune God. But that glory is something that is intrinsic to his being, his essence. And he and the Father possess this glory. And so when we say we glorify Jesus, we're not saying we're adding anything to him, that he's lacking some glory and we have to give glory to him. We are merely saying we are recognizing his glory. When we praise God for his holiness and his love, we are recognizing his holiness and his love and we're, we are putting it on display. We are magnifying it. We are underlining it. We are highlighting it that this is what God is. This is what he is like. And so Jesus is saying, I don't receive any glory from men. I don't receive praise from men. That's not why he came. You know why he came? Who did he come to glorify? The Father. The Spirit glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. That's why he came. He didn't come to receive that glory from men. And then he says, but I know you. And it's obvious just from the words again that uh, you do. <laughs> you, you do receive glory from men. You do receive praise from men. And he says, I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Remember what he said about you do not have his word abiding in you? And now he says you do not have his love in you. Jesus was once asked, what is the, the greatest of all the commandments? And he said the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That's, there's only one God. We worship him. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That is our calling in life, to worship him as the only Lord and to love him with your, your heart and your mind and your strength and every bit of your soul and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Had they done that, had the Pharisees done that, had the Jews done that, you know what he is, he is speaking to right now? He is calling them out for their hardness of heart when this man was healed. This happened, remember what this, the, the whole context is. The man who, had, who was by the pool of Bethesda, he was healed. He comes into the temple grounds carrying his pallets. And they said, that this guy that they know, they've seen him many, many times. He's been, uh, he's been ill for 38 years. And they say to him, wow, you've been healed. Is that what they said? What are you doing carrying your pallet? Oh, well, I've been healed. That's not the point. Did they demonstrate some love to him? What did they care about? The minutia of their law. 
a legalism, a heartless, cold legalism. He was breaking their law. And so they were angry with Jesus because they saw that he had broke the law. Did he break the Sabbath? He did not break God's Sabbath, but he broke their law. You bet he did. He broke their law. By breaking their law, he was keeping God's law. That's a good lesson for us. By breaking man's law, he was keeping God's law. His, the greatest law was the day of Sabbath. You, there is no other God but God. He is the Lord your God, and you shall love him with every bit of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. And so if on the Sabbath and this day that you've set apart for the Lord whom we worship, and this man is ill, help him for the sake of the glory of God. Right? That is not what they saw. They had a cold legalism. Lesson for us. It's timely. Loving obedience to God may mean breaking the laws of men. Loving obedience to God may mean breaking the laws of men. Sometimes it's necessary. Who knows, uh, we're living in a time when uh, um, people with great power are imposing all sorts of things upon Christians and it may become more and more and more clear to us that we will obey God rather than men. Do you see it? We must be prepared for it and willing to do that. The third thing is this written testimony misused as an excuse for self-promotion, which is pride. He said, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in my own name, you receive him, someone who's like you. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? They have gotten into this self-congratulatory mode. They're just praising one another, each other, for all the good things, you know, uh, Uh, Moshe is in the synagogue and he gives this uh, treatise on how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. And Zeke comes up and says, I congratulate you for that great treatise on dancing angels. And he says, I congratulate you for recognizing my great argument. Congratulations. Congratulations. No. Jesus wasn't about that. And neither should we. And the lesson is that the praise of man is a trap that can hinder your spiritual life. If we are looking for the praise of human beings, it can hinder our spiritual life. It can destroy the effectiveness of our ministry. It can blind us to the truth of God's word because we're always looking for the pat on the back, always looking for someone to congratulate us for a job well done, for our knowledge, for our discernment or whatever it may be. Young people, kids, you know what? You are uh, in a time when you all have friends and, uh, and you, you're around kids your age, whether you go to public school or you're homeschooled or you're in a private school, you come to Sunday school, you're maybe you're involved in athletics and you're around kids your own age. And, and then you know what? Do you want people to like you? Everybody does. 
Everybody wants to be popular. You know what? Uh, even at my age, if I get talking to someone about high school, you know what comes up usually with adults? So were, were you popular in high school? Shows how, have you, you got adults, right? It comes up, doesn't it? How silly that is. And kids, that, it's a trap. You uh, live your lives pleasing God. Never live your life to please other people. We want to be pleasing in his sight. And sometimes when we're pleasing in his sight, we're not going to be pleasing in the sight of others. We must always do what God wants us to do. And if we're doing what God wants us to do, that's all he requires of us. He doesn't, he doesn't require that we're popular or that people like us. Our desire to be pleasing to him should be the most important desire in our life. And the second lesson is that a faithful witness to Christ may indeed result in loss of reputation, livelihood, even life itself. Yes, we want to have a good testimony before, before others, but our testimony is first and foremost before God, isn't it? And it is predicted in the scriptures that if we are faithful to him, sometimes we will be rejected by man. That's the way it is. I'd, better, I'd rather be pleasing in the sight of God than pleasing in the sight of man because sometimes if we honor people, we dishonor God. That's not something we want to do. The last thing is a misplaced hope. In verses 45 through 47, he says, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses is it's like a court of law. There's the defendant, that's me. There's the prosecutor. In this case, it is the law, Moses. And the defense advocate is Jesus, but he's also the judge. Remember he said, we saw last week, he will judge. But he's not the prosecutor. The law is. Because no one is justified before God by the law. It, it reveals our sin. And he's saying to them, when the, the law points out your sin, the law uncovers and reveals your sinfulness, your disobedience, your lack of faith. It is not a means of salvation. It is, a, it is a, an opportunity to see that you need salvation. But the judge comes down from the bench and dies in my place and I get to go free. And so do you. And the misplaced hope is they place their hope and their faith in Moses, not in the one whom Moses spoke about. He is our hope and our only faith. And that's the lesson. He is ever and only the only hope for our eternal life. Jesus Christ is ever and only that, never in the law, never in another person. I love the end of, of Luke because it fleshes out what Jesus said here. And Jesus is talking to his disciples after the resurrection, and he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. We are witnesses of these things. And now more than ever, our testimony, our witness is essential. The world is bankrupt. Have you noticed that? All systems are bankrupt, not just police systems. Academia is bankrupt. Government is bankrupt. Everything is bankrupt. The financial system is bankrupt. Who has the answer? Y'all. In Christ. So we are to be that witness and that testimony before him. Father, we thank you for giving to us sufficient testimony and witness through Christ. We ask that we would be faithful to you, faithful to all that you've called us to be, regardless of the cost, regardless of the hurt that it may even bring to our own lives. But we pray for blessing and joy and that we would transform our hearts through faith, our families, our neighborhoods, in this very community for the sake of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.